So first and foremost, what I'm interested in, Imran, is that person in front of me, I'm interested in their story. You know, they talk about the aeroplane, you get in an aeroplane and the vast majority of the time, the aeroplane is off course, but it's the pilot that is constantly just nudging it back onto course. That's essentially the role that I play. This might be in your genes, but depending on the choices you make from here on and the environment that you choose to bathe in, that will determine how much or how little you express those genes or whether you express them more helpfully or less helpfully. We play such a powerful role in how we age or, you know, how well we age or how well we don't. So we normalize the common experience, which then removes from many, many people any sense of empowerment of, well, ultimately it's up to me. Welcome to the Project Human podcast. This episode is with Louise Westra. Louise is a naturopath who uses nutrigenomics to help her clients optimize biological resilience. Genetic testing has become more available to consumers and can provide valuable insights to our individual strengths and weaknesses. It can give us the data to be proactive in living healthy and resilient lives. So enjoy this episode with Louise. She seems like somebody who is walking the talk. She has a lot of energy and looks like she's doing things the right way. Hi, Louise. So really looking forward to this conversation because I think that the field that you work in, nutrigenomics, um, offers a way of looking at our health that a lot of people might not um, even be aware of. And it might provide answers for people that they could potentially struggle to find elsewhere. Um, and I think it could be really beneficial for a broad spectrum of, spectrum of people, whether that's people who have had long-term uh, problems that they can't quite get to the bottom of, or perhaps people who are doing pretty well, but maybe want to optimize further. Um, but before we really get into the, the details of nutrigenomics, I thought it'd be um, good to talk a little bit about your background and uh, perhaps what motivated you to start working in health in the first place, because I believe you've been working in health for 20 years. Um, yeah, I really have him around. <laughs> Can't uh, believe it. And I think many of us, we, we get involved in this area of work because we're trying to solve some problem of our own or perhaps something for somebody close to us. Um, so, yeah, what, what was your story? What motivated you out, uh, to start out on this path? Gosh, uh, well, yeah, firstly, thank you for having me. And uh, it's, yeah, it's been it's been 20 years of working in the field. And I'm now, I've just turned 49. So it's been since my mid, probably late teens, that I really started to become interested in working out more about what was happening in my own body and how I could improve that. So back in my, my teen years, uh, I had been a child who'd been, you know, would have been described as sickly, mm -hmm. always a bit pale. Um, uh, one of those children that uh, was always sick in the holidays, um, chronic tonsillitis, but at a time in the, you know, late seventies where it was no longer fashionable, shall we say, um, for tonsils to be removed. Whereas for my mother, you know, they were taken uh, out in during her, I think late childhood actually. And then as I, you know, came into uh, my teenage years into adolescence, and as I got my period and so on, I got the, you know, the normal, the normal uh, PMS, although I would suggest it was probably, you know, more extreme than, than or more, you know, I was more significantly impacted in some ways than is, would be considered to be normal. And uh, also towards the end of my teenage years into my twenties, I uh, had a really, impactful IBS and irritable bowel syndrome, uh, both from 
stress and emotions, even though I've been told by a doctor that that had absolutely nothing to do with it. Uh, funnily enough, it was a homeopathic doctor. Mm. Interesting. Um, that, yeah, that's a that's another story. Um, and at the same time, I had that was exacerbated, I'm sure, by a parasitic um, infection during travel from the UK over to Australia, where I eventually settled and got married in my mid twenties. As part of that journey as well, I had uh, some significant challenges emotionally and mentally. And let's face it, you know, these things are not, you know, they they intersect uh, throughout our layers. So I've had, um, I've been medicated for, for uh, clinical depression, or I was, I attempted to be medicated for clinical depression. And at the time I just wanted a tablet to, you know, help me function really. And uh, it didn't, it just did not work for me at all. It, it sent me into a, a, a very zombie-like state. And I just felt like the, the flat line, the emotional flat line that I was experiencing as a result of that. So not, I definitely had less of the low, but I was unable to, you know, feel like joy and happiness were really elusive to me. So I elected to not continue down that route. And it was probably a defining moment looking back. The other defining moment, Imran, was, and I can still see myself in this moment, was when my grandmother, who had a first heart attack when I was, my mother was pregnant with me, said to me when I was, I think about 15, if you have your health, you have everything. Now, I didn't fully understand at that age what that was going to mean for me in terms of the rest of my life, because I was an English language, English lit, uh, French, um, you know, double honours uh, degree at university, my first degree. But it's been something that's been, you know, that I've carried with me. And I saw firsthand the amount of lost quality of life that is directly related to somebody's experience of their emotional, mental, physical um, health. Mm. So you had quite a lot of things going on then, uh, by the sounds of it. Yeah, and and uh, as well on the paternal side of my family, uh, my father. I don't I don't talk about this in open um, spaces usually because it is his story, although it has of course informed mine. Uh, but my father was uh, suicidal a number of occasions throughout mine and my brother and sister's childhood. And again, medicated on several occasions. And so that both obviously impacted me as a young person. And uh, also now knowing more about myself and my own biology has, you know, it's it's been part of the journey of making sense of it all. Mm. So was there a point where you decided to change career? Because it sounds like perhaps you were, you initially had um, a different career path in mind uh, before you trained as a naturopath. Yeah, so when I left the... So I was on track to... I never wanted to work with people. <laughs> so at one stage, I was on track to... Uh, I was hoping to head to veterinary school. However, the requirements to get into a veterinary university course here in the UK at that time, I'm sure it's the same here, are basically four A's at A-level. And although I was earmarked at one point to do the Oxbridge you know, um, entrance exams, I was withdrawn from that because I was not a natural um, intellectual I was just a really, really hard worker um, and I enjoyed learning. And uh, that was probably, you know, it was definitely an ego. It, it was definitely an ego blow at the time. And then I dug in and I thought kind of, well, I'll prove you lot wrong. So I got three A's. However, during that A-level examination time, one of my peers who was going to Cambridge with an, uh, you know, um, two E's. She didn't, she basically needed to turn up for the exams and write her name. She was a brilliant, brilliant young woman. Uh, she took an overdose 
during during our exams. And although it didn't impact me directly compared to some of my friends, because she was she was one of my peers, she wasn't actually a friend. We were in the same year group. It again, it helped to inform my decisions because I knew that if I had gone to Oxford, which was where I was, you know, I thought I wanted to go and, and I would have read English, it would have taken every ounce of me to keep up with people like her who were naturally highly intellectual and it probably would have broken me. Sounds similar to my experience in school. I was, I was fortunate enough to go to a, you know, quite a good grammar school, but yeah, I, I felt like um, I felt a similar kind of pressure and um, yeah, young people there were under a lot of pressure that were um, to go through a certain career path. Um, which personally I opted not to do, but um, yeah, it it certainly had uh, some uh, effects for some people um, in terms of mental health, the stress that they were under. You know, um, yes, yeah, a real thing. And well, I was fortunate because I had uh, my mother, who was probably unbeknown to me at that time, a buffer between my father's expectations. Because when she announced that I was going to be going to university, he apparently said, well, who's paying for that? And she said, well, we are. Um, and I think on some level, and, and my, my father is an extraordinarily generous man, very kind in many ways, but he is totally unaware of the influence of, say, you know, the patriarchy upon, you know, his own life. And I genuinely think that there was a part of him that was like, well, if I've paid for her to do this, then I expect to see some kind of successful career. And to be fair to him, I don't think that that's by any stretch uh, that he was an exception. And so he had this idea that after I finished university, I would probably go to London um, and work in you know, the media, I did have the opportunity to spend a summer working at a couple of different magazines in the city. And honestly, Imran, I was like, by the end of a couple of weeks that I spent, no, what was the magazine? I can't remember. It probably doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't really matter. But to see these, you know, like grown women in their late 20s, essentially arguing over who was going to get tickets to you know, whatever event it was, I was like, this is not what, like, this is just not what I've, I'm signing up for. If I'm going to be in the media, I'm going to be there to make some kind of difference. And this is just, you know, I'm all for having fun, but this is just puerile. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a real difference between being childish and childlike. I'm very, I can be very childlike, but I do my utmost to avoid being childish. Yeah. I fail miserably some days with my children. <laughs> Sometimes I'll just poke my tongue out with them and, and my husband's like rolling his eyes and going like, stop. So then training as a naturopath, I guess in this country, um, a lot of people might not even know what a naturopath is, but in, in other places it's, um, it's looked upon differently. Yeah, exactly that. So uh, after I finished my degree, I went traveling and I bought a round the world ticket. And in a nutshell, I got to Australia. Uh, I had, <laughs> I had, a, I was in a car accident. Um, I, it completely changed the trajectory of my life, I would suggest. And I met my husband about 48 hours, my, the man that was going to be my husband, 48 hours later. Um, and we got married six months to the day that we met. So we ended up staying in Australia when, when I left the UK, it was really only a halfway point. So after I'd been there for a short period of time, um, I knew that what, how we'd met and what we were doing wasn't what I wanted to do in the long run. And I found out about this thing called naturopathy or naturopathic medicine. Um, and there are a couple of very good colleges in Sydney uh, Australia and I signed up for one of those and 
It was a four, three and a half or four year course. You could also elect to do a bachelor's degree alongside that, but I already had an honors degree. So I was like, I really don't need that. I did later top it up. Um, and then I did my MSc when I got back to the UK. But as you say, in Australia, there are as many visits annually to naturopaths as there are to GPs because, you know, the Western scientific paradigm is built on acute care. and uh, it, It's derived from the medicine of the battlefield. And that is immensely helpful when it comes to emergency medicine, you know, in a road traffic accident type situation, when it comes to surgical intervention. And, you know, I'm in awe of the medical system when it comes to things like, um, you know, supporting, uh, um, you know, tiny infants that have been born prematurely. And, uh, you know, th there's much to be thankful for, but it is only one paradigm. And there is not one system of medicine on the planet currently that can it can do everything. And, and, and it's really important that people understand that if you go, for instance, to a surgeon and you're looking to get an, you know, um, a kind of 360 degree view of what you should and shouldn't be doing in terms of choices or what's achievable, that surgeon is most likely going to talk to you about what they can do, which is a surgical option. They're you not mentioned going tons to tonsillitis their... earlier on. Um... Exactly right. They're not going to mm. say, well, listen, you know, we let's schedule you for, let's consider scheduling you for tonsil, a tonsillectomy in six months time. In the meantime, I'd like you to see my colleague, Louise Westra, who's going to make you up a bespoke, you know, herbal plant-based, uh, you know, formula that is unique to you, that is going to decongest and help to get your lymphatics flowing back to your liver. And, and while we're doing that, we're gonna have a look and see where the challenges are in your detoxification pathways so that you're informed to the for the rest of your life to know that this might be in your genes, but depending on the choices you make from here on and the environment that you choose to bathe in, that will determine how, you know, how much or how little you express those genes or how, you know, whether you express them more helpfully or less helpfully. Mm, okay. So when, when did the, um, when did you first touch upon the field of nutrigenomics and uh, start incorporating yeah, been, this into your practice? Yeah. So it's, it's been on and off uh, for years. So, um, you know, I became aware of 23andMe I uh, can't remember how many years they've been going, but, you know, I feel like I've I've known about them for a long, long time. I never felt the information was necessarily particularly accessible for my clients. And I'm as much as I have a lot of clients that I work with on an ongoing and retained basis as a kind of advocate. You know, so usually when people come to me, there is something wrong. But once we've got through the part that isn't, you know, making them feel good mentally, emotionally, physically, or whatever, most of those people then come to a point where they're like, well, I, I want more of this. How can I, you know, I've come through there actually being a condition that, that is diagnosed or, you know, I had something wrong with me, but now I want us to go into the optimization part of things, Louise. And I know I need you to keep helping me to inform my decisions and it's also like the, you know, they talk about the aeroplane. You get in an aeroplane and the vast majority of the time, the aeroplane is off course, but it's the pilot that is constantly just nudging it back onto course. That's essentially the role that I play. Um, but I just, so, But at the same time, I want to ensure that the resources I encourage my clients to invest in are as easy, and as accessible as possible for them to use whether I am beside them or not mm, so it was really it. only a, yeah it was really only about this time last year um that I found a uh you know a, a, a entered into a partnership with a lab here in the UK that I'm very happy with 
the information that they're providing that is then, you know, I work through with my clients to give them the things that we need to focus on for the next, say, three, six, 12 months or whatever as part of our strategy. And excuse me, how we're going to look, you know, what are the, what, where's the evidence of success for them in that strategy? And we use the nutrigenomics as a sort of, I think I've said to you before, a SWOT, a SWOT analysis. Mm. So we get to see where their strengths are, you know, where are the areas that are working or likely to be working really, really well that they kind of are falling back on. Where are the areas? I don't really love the word weakness, to be honest, Imran, but I think of them as, as vulnerabilities. These are the areas where if you think of, I always think of the M6 <laughs> because uh, where I live in Scotland and where my parents live down on the Wiltshire Hampshire border, we spend a lot of time on the M6 when we're traveling to see them or to come home. And there are always parts of the M6. You always think, oh, it's going to take this amount of time. You get on the M6 and then it's down to 50 miles an hour or 40 miles an hour or whatever. And there's of the three lanes, there's two lanes closed or you're over on the other side. And, and I think of those the weaknesses or the vulnerabilities as a, if you think of it as a motorway. And if we have genes that are not... Um, that have these little typos or glitches on them, which are adversely impacting how we are taking up and metabolizing our nutrients from our food, then instead of those three lanes of traffic being open and all moving really nicely, you might have your two lanes closed in, in the um, you know, biologically speaking. And then when you throw in the circumstances of life, before you know it, you might be pushed up on the hard shoulder and, you know, up on the verge. Mm -hmm. So that really gives us the opportunity then to see where we will likely be able to get somebody more energy, better hormone balance, a more a robust immune system. So we're creating a personalized or it's, it's further informing a personalized strategy. And then the threat side of things, I don't, again, I don't love the name, but the threat side of things, I really think of that as the future scenarios. So again, for my ongoing clients, it allows us to plan like, so, so for instance, a client might say to me, Louise, I'm going for a promotion at work or I'm about to scale my business, you know, if it's an entrepreneur. And I'm like, well, that's great to know because, you know, this is what we've been doing. It's working really, really well. What do we need to know about the demands on your time and energy and how are we going to tweak your strategy to ensure that you're not eroding your biological bandwidth and that more of the traffic isn't going to be pushed up onto the, you know, onto a, a narrower flow, leaving you, you know, at risk of expressing again, those genes um, in the worst possible way and leaving you depleted, drained, or even having what I refer to as a never well since scenario, which is often when people come to me, it's because they have unwittingly um, been, you know, draining themselves, not nourishing themselves other than in a relatively arbitrary way, even if they've had very good intentions and want to be healthy because they, they don't know where they're vulnerable. Mm. And then, you know, when I say to them, well, you know, what was happening at that time when he first started to get sick? And they often use this term. Oh, I've never been well since. I see. I, I, yeah, I really like the uh, the motorway analogy. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. So when you actually start working with somebody, um, is uh, finding out the uh, client or patient's genetic blueprint, is that one of the first steps? And how how does that actually, uh, how's that actually done? Yeah, I mean, my answer to most things, as you probably know now, is it depends. So, you know, in an in an ideal world, if my client has the means, um, then 
yes, we would go into looking at that D, those DNA blueprints as much as possible. Uh, again, it, it depends on their financial means and, and so on, of course. But it's also absolutely imperative that as a practitioner, I don't take my eyes off the prize, so to speak, because it's the human in front of me that counts above all other things. And I think it's really, really important as practitioners that we continue to ensure that we don't fall into the trap of relying on any type of testing, whether it is, you know, nutrigenomic, whether it is blood testing, whether it is hair analysis, you know, it, it's really, really important that we look at the nuance and the context of the individual. So first and foremost, what I'm interested in, Imran, is that person in front of me. I'm interested in their story. I'm interested in grounding them in time and space so that I can build up as much context as, context as possible so that I don't, I mean, don't get me wrong, the vast majority of my clients at some stage do do the nutrigenomic testing and I'm very privileged because a lot of my clients will trust me and they'll just say, well, you know, what do I need to do? What, what do I need to do? So I, we might be doing four or five tests at once. Others, it might be just one judicious test, because, again, that's from a, that's financially what they, they can, um, you know, uh, the means that they have at that time. But it's really important that I listen, because, again, as a naturopath, what anyone tells me about how they feel, how they think, their cognitive experiences, their, um, you know, their, their choices, their decision making, those things will also tell me a lot about what is and isn't happening well in the body because the body is constantly trying to give us the messages. And then I suppose for me, I use the nutrigenomics as a way of ensuring that what I'm thinking is happening is in the blueprint and or as a way of building a, you know, so that's if they come to me and there's something wrong. But for clients who are, you know, they, they have nothing wrong with them medically um, or they have uh, had a client this week um, who is on a long-term omeprazole uh, for a, you know, esophageal issue, erosion, and uh, at the same time, wants to find out more about, you know, how that long-term medication, because it is required definitely at this stage, could be, you know, hitting those typos, those glitches, and making things harder for his body in other ways, whilst also looking to optimize and build more of a proactive preventative strategy for risk factors within, you know, their family. Mm. So yeah, it's part of a, a holistic approach, I guess. So um, I think the the older paradigm that probably um, many people are still under is that our, our genes are our fate. Um, and yeah, many people might, might not even really be aware of this idea that, uh, that, um, genes can express differently depending on, um, the inputs in your life. Um, so yeah, perhaps you could talk a little bit more about, uh, what kind of things affect how our genes express. Yeah. So just before we get to that, can I just make one hmm. point about, um, again, as you say, the limitations. So uh, personally, I've had this personally, as well as professionally, um, I've been, I've, I know that my B12 levels in my blood are normal. They're within the normal accepted range. They're not even at the low end. Sorry, I've nearly, I've got so excited, I've nearly hit my laptop. <laughs> they're not even at the low end of normal. They're like, you know, they're, even I'm like, well, they look good. However, when you look at my DNA, I have genetics, so we call them, we actually call them SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms. Um, but as I say, let's just call them glitches or typos. 
I have a, a, a glitch on my ability or potentially I have a you know, I have a glitch, which potentially means in my case that I have reduced absorption of B12. I have reduced transport of B12. And I also have reduced capacity to get B12 across into my Krebs cycle where the magic, you know, all our energy is made, as you know. And so this is where blood testing within the Western, you know, framework, the Western paradigm can be limited because you can be told that you have plenty of that nutrient in your blood but it doesn't mean that your body is able to use it necessarily. And whilst I've been working on myself for, let's say I am 49, level 49, and I've been working uh, in this way, both with the support of others and, and, you know, doing it myself for over well, 20, no, 30 years to one degree or another. So I've done a huge amount of work remembering what I talked about, where I came from. I, you know, I was miserable on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, even after um, I finished my naturopathic, uh, my initial round of naturopathic studies, I was, I was burnt out. It took me two years to properly recover with everything that I was trying to balance at that time alongside studying. And so, you know, it, it's just understanding that that system, just because you're told that you've got plenty of that happening in the blood, it doesn't mean it's it's working for you. So when I did my genetics uh, profiling last year and I found that I had this, particularly this MUT SNP, which means that I need an adenosyl form of B12, which is not commonly found in nutrients, definitely not in your you know, pharmacy, supermarket, standard, even health food store level, even, you know... Um, uh, I, I started to take it and it's, it's been a revelation for me, even with everything else that I've already done for myself. And, and I would generally describe myself as feeling pretty damn fantastic on a day-to-day -day basis. It's, it's changed what's happening for me on a cognitive level. Um, so I just wanted to make that point because that can mm. also be the same. For instance, I know we talked about vitamin D um, previously you and I in another conversation whereby if you have a significant down regulation of sensitivity in your vitamin D receptors which again you cannot test for using the standard um, you know blood testing then you probably want to be uh, having a strategy of supplementation that takes your vitamin D levels up to a hundred nanomoles per milliliter or, or whatever it is, rather than the standard, you know, 50 to 75 being fine. Yeah. I think that context is, is really uh, important and something, yeah, tons of people might be missing. Um, that's, you know, that's why I wanted to speak to you because yeah, um, probably in the UK, very few people are, um, regularly getting blood work done. We tend to rely more, I think, on um, when we're um, prompted to by a health professional rather than uh, being proactive in getting that. So even those people who are being proactive and getting blood work done from time to time um, are still not seeing the full picture without well, the, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, without the uh, underlying often, genetic blueprint. They are, you know, unintentionally being misinformed but you know the, the the fact that it's unintentional really doesn't matter. Intent in any area of our lives is not the point. You know this whole idea of people having good intentions has been something that we've allowed people to use as a default excuse for some terrible behaviours in many different areas mm. of life. So I'm here for the impact, and the impact of that is as you say, that people are misinformed, that they are being left potentially with significant nutrient deficiencies that is impacting 37 billion things, sorry, 37,000 billion things, I should say 37 trillion things that are happening, happening every second of every day of our lives. So we, sh we can't underestimate how much of an impact that oversight 
Mm. Um, and lack of understanding. And I, I don't, I'm not criticizing the medical system. It's just they need to be more open about the the con constraints of that approach and more receptive to you know additional services that could actually make their life a damn sight easier because in the long run it would most likely reduce the uh you know financial impact on the nhs mm, for sure so yeah just to uh, backtrack a little bit to what we were talking about uh, a minute ago um so uh, you gave a couple of examples of dietary interventions. I, I always like an example. Um, I think it can just make things much more real and easy to understand. Um, other things outside of dietary um, factors that affect our genes, perhaps in the, our environment and lifestyle. Um, is that something that you would help people with as well? Um, yes. I mean, I guess the... The main area that I always think of when people ask me about, well, you know, what more broadly speaking, what can be impacting my genes is, you know, the 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 world that we live in, the environment that we live in, our genes are essentially bathing in that environment. And so it's very, very helpful to know where our particular blueprint, where our particular DNA might be less capable of dealing with some of those environmental exposures without becoming neurotic about it, because there are choices that we can make to mitigate risk. So for instance, uh, if I think about coffee, right, I love coffee, love coffee, but really I'm a coffee snob. Um, and I need to be Imran because I don't detoxify caffeine particularly well. However, when things are running well, I get no adverse effects from my slower metabolism and my sensitivity to caffeine. However, if I'm already a little bit frayed under the pump and then I have a coffee, then I feel it. The other thing is that there is a gene called PON1 and that gene handles things like oxidized lipids. So we have to remember that something like coffee is not just caffeine, it has oils in it. And those oils are roasted. And depending on who's taking care of that coffee in terms of the processing, some of those oils could be very, very oxidized and they could even be rancid. So if we have a down regulation, in our PON1 gene, if we have a, a typo there and we are less able to deal with oxidized fats, lipids, then some coffees, we might notice that some coffees make us feel a bit, ooh, like without yeah. even the caffeine aspect. And that's exactly what I get in some of my clients. They'll say, oh, I know if I drink coffee here, I feel fine. But actually, when I drink coffee over in this coffee shop, it seems bizarre to me, but I don't feel particularly well after it. The other thing is that a lot of health conscious people will look for an organic coffee. Problem with that, and again, it, it, it's another phase of detoxification, different, slightly different pathways. You know, uh, organic coffee is more prone to mold growth. So if we have a down regulation in our ability to deal with mold, then we might feel like, well, it's not the caffeine. I don't feel like I'm, I haven't got palpitations. I don't feel anxious, but I just feel a bit, you know, just not a bit liverish, you know? Mm. So I think coffee can be a good example of that um, because, you know, and, and tea can be the same because obviously it contains caffeine and Again, doesn't just contain caffeine, but even things like, you know, I saw a terrible thing this week about the, the number of two to five-year-olds that are essentially um, have a, a really huge amount of ultra-processed foods in their diet. And, it, you know, that breaks my heart because that's the time at which those young, young, young children have a reduced PON1 expression. So when they're being given the 
Can I use brand names? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. We're closed in Maryland. So when they're using things like, you know, pom bears, um, Pringles, Skittles, anything that is so highly processed, when you look at the label, you know, it's got tens, at least 10, if not 20 um, uh, ingredients, and it's usually highly covered. You can see Skittles, you know, they, that wax, that mm. wax is, again, everything has to be broken down in the body. But these young, young children, they even even if they don't have a glitch or, or a typo on their PON1 gene, they have a reduced activity. So it's even more important that they aren't exposed to these foods. And yet, you know, time and time again, I see parents who are dealing with their own like dysfunctional relationships and trying to unpack those dysfunctional relationships with food, perpetuating exactly the same cycle with their children, only it's worse because there's so much more of this ultra processed food around now. And a lot of it is marketed as a snack when it's actually, if, uh, I mean, I use this word treat in the loosest, hmm. um, you know, phase, uh, loosest term. So yes, our environment, absolutely paramount. And that also has a knock on effect uh, for hormones because our hormones are um, metabolized through those detoxification pathways in our uh, liver. And there is research that shows that if certain pathways are downregulated, there is a correlation with um, you know, certain types of cancer, like breast cancer, for instance. So mm -hmm. again, it doesn't mean someone's gonna get breast cancer, but it, it means, again, that they have an opportunity to be more informed and therefore to make more informed decisions about, for instance, how much alcohol they drink. Mm -hmm. You know, what what uh, personal care products they choose to put on their bodies or not, um, uh, whether or not they they choose to take HRT, for instance. We've got this round the wrong way. Women are put onto HRT and then taken off it if and when there's a, you know, um, a, a cancerous situation, when I firmly believe that if it were men that needed to take HRT, they would be tested first to see if the HRT was going to have potentially heightened risk, depending on those genetic SNPs, and then make, be, be counseled and make an informed decision as a result of that, rather than it being after the horse has bolted. Yeah, if we have the ability to do that, it seems ridiculous not to, uh, and to just take the chance and wait and see what happens. Um, yeah, it's irresponsible, really. Um, yeah. I, I like the uh, the coffee example you gave because it <laughs> I can resonate with that personally, having just completely given up drinking coffee exactly as you said i found i could drink certain types and then other types just wrote my day off so i, I just stopped drinking it eventually and I was, I was chatting with a friend about it who's similarly enthusiastic about coffee um but didn't understand my uh, my sensitivity to it yeah. Uh, yeah and he he just said well you, you're just older now you know this is what happens and um I, and you know i take his point to, cer to a certain extent but um what it made me think of is, uh, yeah, we do become less resilient to certain things. I could drink a strong black coffee when I was 20, no problem. You know, I can't even look at the stuff now. So do you feel like there's um, that age is a factor in this or that um, perhaps not necessarily age, but maybe just time? So let's say you have some um, aspect of your genetic makeup that is suboptimal um is it perhaps a case that you can get away with something for a certain amount of time um until uh, you reach a threshold where you can't get away with it anymore yeah i mean pretty much exactly that some people are less or more fortunate depending on your perspective because i remember um uh, an entrepreneur that i admire saying to me about uh, a while back about you know what's the What's the worst thing that can happen to somebody who gambles for the first time? And the answer mm. is that they can win. Mm. So, you know, when it comes to 
our genetic expression, I think when we are younger, a lot of people are not living into the less helpful um, expression of their typos, their glitches. And so they're thinking, well, you know, I, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong. You know, I'm bulletproof. Nothing all, mm. is all good. And then again, if we go back to the motorway analogy, if we haven't known where the opportunity is to really continue to build a strong foundation of, in, in the motorway analogy, bitumen, and mm -hmm. make sure that the cat's eyes are maintained and the lines are intact and so on, that over time, you know, cracks are going to appear. There are going to be more accidents happening. We're maybe going to have to cordon off more of that part of that road for repair, thus making things harder. Because we yeah. may not know, you know, that the things we're doing, um, the everyone else seems to be doing as well are actually slowly and incrementally impacting our genes to express themselves in the worst way. Cause this is a thing, it's a bi-directional relationship whereby, you know, your genetic SNPs will inform your ability to uptake and metabolize nutrients and therefore their interaction with enzymes and cofactors. And, and that's where they impact all our biological processes. But it, as I say, it's bi-directional. So if we are unwittingly doing things that are exerting pressure in the opposite direction, then that is going to catch up with us at some point. Mm. And uh, most uh, people are going to have that happening sooner rather than later because they don't have this information to go, right, well, this doesn't seem to be a problem right now. However, I, I want to mitigate risks. And I'm interested in being proactive and preventative. So, you know, if I am going to drink coffee, I also know that I've got, you know, these things here, coffee drains these things, but I've got an increased need for those. So maybe that needs to be part of my, um, you know, day-to-day um, -day eating and or some kind of supplementary uh, input. Yeah, I think having information um, as early as possible is, is so important. I, I've worked with a... I tend to work with people mainly in their 40s and 50s. And I, I think we, we can get into this um, situation of uh, the expression is a death of a thousand cuts. So um, something can be deteriorating so slowly uh, that on a day-to-day -day basis, we don't notice it. But then you get to the, the middle part of your life, maybe you're in your 40s or 50s, and you notice you have a problem um, that just seems to have crept up on you um, that could well have been avoidable if you'd had information earlier on. And I can imagine, you know, as, as we get older, the likelihood of this happening as we, we get into older age is, is even higher. Agreed, because again, I'm not saying that aging isn't a very real phenomenon. Hmm. Of course it is. Um, but I believe in, uh, I believe that for the vast majority of us, we really could be playing a much, we, we, we play such a powerful role in how we age or, you know, how well we age or how well we don't. Mm, yeah. And then as sure. you say, you know, you get to 40 or 50 and you're like, oh God, now I feel rubbish. And, and I'm starting to be told often, oh, we well, may need to take this, you know, proton pump inhibitor for your indigestion. Mm. And or we need to look at your cholesterol and your blood pressure is a bit raised and you've got this in the family and so on. But then when we talk to other people around us, as far as we're concerned, that is normal. So we normalize the common experience, which then removes from many, many people any sense of empowerment of, well, ultimately, it's up to me. Yeah, and, I and think that's. Uh... You know, that's I'm not minimizing mm -hmm. the fact that depending on many different things, people have different sets of choices to make. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe uh, switching gears a little bit. So um, through your career and your, your training and uh, the, the fields that you've um, developed expertise in, have you had any particular mentors along the way or people that have uh, inspired you? Um, or people 
that are inspiring you currently? Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I did have uh, in my initial naturopathic journey, I had a mentor um, and I'm still very grateful for, to her for many things um, that she uh, taught me. And one of the big things she taught me um, was about boundaries and being able to, you know, you, you don't have to be available all the time. And actually it's, I wouldn't say I've struggled with it, but I, because I, I genuinely love and care for my clients. Uh, it is still something that I continue to, you know, it continues to evolve. I think that's true for anyone, but I had a situation this week where a uh, client had a client booked for a call to review a nutrigenomic test actually for her um, a, a child who was in her teens, but the mum was going to be on the call as well. And uh, she, I, I did a, a Facebook post, you know, in my own time on my personal profile about actually my training that I've been doing. Uh, here, here, here's how it's going. And it was a two minute video from my last kickboxing training session. Although my ego wants you to know, Imran, just in case you see it, that I was tired. Okay, I was tired. Okay, but my, but... I'll look out for that. I'll bear it in mind. <laughs> anyway, you know, she popped up on one of the messages because she is in my friend's house and said, I sent you an urgent voicemail. Now it was at 8.30 at night. And so I just popped up and said, oh, you know, I won't be listening. I don't listen to Messenger at night. And I just left it. But I did have a moment where I was like, should I go and check that? Uh, and I, I nearly checked it, but I'll tell you why, because I was concerned that it was going to wake me up at night. Uh, uh, well, I was a concerned that there was something really, you know, but then I was, I was thinking, well, what am I possibly going to be able to do it? As it transpired, there was absolutely no need for her to send me that messenger. Like in terms of helping the thing, the consultation the next day. Um, so you know, I love my clients, but I, uh, you know, we're all human and this, the whole social media messenger, it, 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 sometimes people do need a reminder that you are a human with your own life. And if you choose to pop up on your Facebook profile at every, any time of the day or night does not mean that they also are able to think that you should be, you know, informed about something to do with work. That's not really, I mean, I, it, I guess it was, it was an answer. Um, uh, there's a chap I uh, like very much called Chris Newbold. Um, and he, uh, he, I don't know how long he worked for Biocare, but he, um, I really like him because he's very sensible. So I, I just, one of the things that frustrates me is, the impracticality of some of the advice that I see there, you know, like the whole miracle morning thing. Okay, maybe a miracle morning, getting up at 4.30 or five o'clock in the morning works for you if you are an early bird. Like if you have the, you know, your expression of the um, pair one gene uh, gives you that naturally. However, you know, for a lot of people, they would do much better starting their day a bit later and they were also juggling a lot of things in the morning. So trying to get up and meditate and write their bullet journal and have their, you know, coconut, their medium chain fatty acids in their black coffee. And, you know, um, it's just all too much. It's just, I just really uh, struggle, but Chris is really, really sensible. And again, he's he constantly reminds me or reminds people, you know, the client first. Yes, it's great to have all these bells and whistles and these tests and, and it's informing my strategy for my clients um, uh, brilliantly and helping them also to remove some of the shame and and feeling sometimes of why aren't I good enough? Why can't I? Why do? Why is this harder for me? Why do I you know, need to basically advocate for myself when I'm out with friends and they want me to drink and I, I, I actually want a green juice, you know? um or, or whatever so he's probably one at the moment I to be honest with you Imran I probably have more of a list of people that I avoid 
<laughs> yes, that, that could be wise. <laughs> I'll zip it now. <laughs> yeah, finding um, balanced information. Um, when yeah, everybody's got a platform, everybody's got a voice. Uh, it can be a case of not just who uh, shouts loudest, but um, people who are just charismatic and speak well can um, draw a lot of attention to themselves. And sometimes it takes a little while to uh, to figure out how much substance there actually is to what they're saying. Certainly in the health and fitness world, um, I've, I've fallen into that trap, I think, a few times. Um, but okay, so uh, for you, what is interesting right now in terms of perhaps new research or things that you're looking into or things that you're keen to learn? Uh, maybe it's kickboxing. Maybe it's not related to um, <laughs> your, your work. Yeah, so, well, firstly, on the on the professional side of things, I mean, nutrigenomics is... Uh, of, is a is a brilliant field uh, for someone like me whose dopamine needs to be constantly <laughs> stimulated, and I try to do it in the you know most helpful way as opposed to you know the least helpful way. Um, so that's 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 a kind of never ending journey, and I, I don't think that will ever um, that will never not excite me. Uh, but yeah, I, actually, it's funny you mentioned that. But for me. Uh, I really want to be able to hold my own body weight up in the Olympic ring. So um, that's one, one thing. And then the other thing is, which is part of the same ability, as far as I'm concerned, um, is yeah, being able to do freestanding handstands. So I can, I can do them up against a wall, um, but I really want to move to be able to do that without any support. Um, and I feel like, you know, there's, there's, there's this general idea that yes, you can, of course you can stay fit and you should stay fit and you should be uh, lifting some weights as you, you know, get older and so on. But there is a common misconception that you can't build muscle as you age. And well, you, you know, you know, my husband, um, uh, you know, he's, he's living proof of that not being true at all. And, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't keep, um, a, you know, an ongoing, I'm not, I'm not monitoring myself closely in that way as, as he is. Um, but I definitely know that in terms of my own muscle mass and strength and so on, that that is something that is continuing to build and, um, and, and I'm excited. I mean, I'm here for that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. A couple of really good goals. So a, a freestanding handstand and is it uh, holding your weight, sort of hanging from the rings? Uh, well, I would like to be up. So it, uh, ultimately I'd like to be able to do muscle up, but I'm not, yeah. I'm, I'm not even close um, yeah. on the kickboxing. So it would be like that top position of a, a dip that you want. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, and then on the kickboxing side of things, I was saying to my husband after I'd seen this video of myself this week, oh, something about, you know, wanting to be able to kick higher. And he said, well, if you go back and you look at that video again, a couple of those kicks are, they are pretty high. It just yeah. doesn't feel, it just doesn't feel like that to me. So mm -hmm. maybe I'm doing better than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. I believe you've also written a book uh, quite recently. Is that right? Oh, it was uh, August. Yeah, fairly recently. August of last. Yeah. No, not last year. Sorry. No, it was August of 2021. Now. 2021. Okay. Yeah. yeah. What, what's the book about? Uh, the book is called You First. And it's written predominantly for women. And it's all about re-centering themselves as you can probably tell from the title uh to ensure that they are the priority because otherwise you know what the last 20 years of my professional work has taught me and also just observing and and being somebody who is you know who pays attention to others is that if women don't make that choice then conditioning and you know social factors usually mean that they 
get further and further and further and further away from themselves and their needs and that they pay a very, very high price for that. Mm, yeah. Okay, well, I think we probably better be, bring this uh, to a conclusion. I think we could talk for uh, a long time. There's <laughs> lots of common grounds that I think we'll we have could have a series. Cover. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps we should uh, do another one sometime, hope to. Um, so, yeah, where can people find out more about um, your work, how to contact you? What's the best way to get in touch? So the best way to get in touch is to email me at louise at louisewester.com. I do have a website, louisewester.com. However, it is it requires some uh, reworking at the moment. As far as uh, social media platforms go, I mainly hang out these days on LinkedIn because I'm doing more and more to delineate between, you know, professional and uh, personal life. Mm -hmm. Uh, to model that for my children because I think it's it's going to be even harder for the next generation. Yeah. Okay. So uh, kickboxing and training videos, uh, Facebook, but professional stuff on LinkedIn. Well, no. I mean, I, <laughs> I I'm actually plan on putting that kickboxing um, onto LinkedIn because again, okay. I think it's really important that women see, uh, you know, someone who is the same age as them or older than them or a little bit younger than them who's going. I know I've, this has been a year. It's been a year that I've been kickboxing, you know, at 48. Whereas there's a lot of people who are like, oh, 48, you know, oh. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't be doing some gentle yoga or Tai Chi and so on, but we do need a variety of different movements. So if I can be part of inspiring that type of movement rather than this whole, oh, well, you know, everyone else my age feels a bit rubbish now. Everyone else my age is having a terrible perimenopause. Everyone else is starting to take medications. I'm the one, I'm the disruptor going, doesn't have to be like this. So you will see it on LinkedIn, Imran. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> okay, Louise, thanks very much. Thank you.